Okay, thank you everybody. Uh, we have another episode of Conversations with Dr. Cowan and uh, friends. And I have a new friend uh, that I'm going to introduce today. Her name is Wendy and I'll let her say her last name. Uh, and we've met for the last few months. And um, what we're really talking about today is uh, Wendy is the uh, she'll tell us more. And again, I always ask people, if I, if you hear something that isn't right, just correct me. But I think he, the producer and director, or maybe just director of, uh, of a film called Medicating Normal, which I really think everybody should, uh, should watch. I watched it um, and it, it's, it's just brilliant. And so Wendy will tell us how to access this. But it, it's, it's basically about it's about a lot of things, but the main thing it's about is the problem with psychiatric drugs. And the problem with psychiatric drugs gets into a whole lot of different areas, including what is a psychiatric diagnosis and how do we do drug trials and how do we know the cause of disease? And there's a lot of things that you would think uh, may not be related, but actually are. And you know, I, I did some other shows that touched on the problem with a psychiatric diagnosis and psychiatric meds, which uh, I, I can tell you, Wendy, in 37 years of doing medicine, I'm trying to, I was trying to think yesterday whether this is actually 100% correct. But as far as I remember, I did not write one prescription for a psychiatric drug. It's, it's possible somebody might tell me that they were my patient and they were getting it and they needed a refill temporarily. And I would usually say to people, I'm not doing it. You have, if you want to take this stuff, you go to your psychiatrist or whatever. There may be somebody out there who I did like a week to, to, because I thought maybe I didn't have any choice, but I don't actually remember doing that. So it may be that I didn't do that. Um, and I, I think I'm going to also relate something that uh, Andy Kaufman said on a previous interview because he was a psychiatrist. And, and I thought it was a great story about this whole thing. So he was a psychiatrist in prescribing drugs and said, which is my experience too. Uh, so what is the basis of, say, depression? Where does it come from? And as he found out, it's because you're a family doctor like I was, and a person comes in and you say, hi, what's up? And the person says they're depressed. You don't ask them anything else about what does that mean or what do they feel or how's their health or how's their life? And then you ask them, are you suicidal? And they say no. And then you give them Prozac. And that, that's sort of all there is to it. And he, he pointed out that he got fed up with that because he wanted at least something more objective. So he would say, well, how's your family? Well, not so good. My wife and I are having trouble. How's your job? You know, I'm not feeling so well. I, you know, I'm not doing so well at job. How's your health? You know, I'm 20 pounds overweight and I don't feel so good. And, you know, how's your finances? Yeah, I've lost a lot of money. I don't work. So I'm about broke. Okay, so then he, he says he's depressed. You give him Prozac. He comes back eight weeks later and you say, how you doing? 
And he says, oh, I'm much better. I feel a lot less depressed. So how's, how's your marriage? Oh, we got divorced. How's your finances? I, I went bankrupt. I lost all my money. How's your health? I, I gained another 20 pounds. Interesting, it's one of the side effects of Prozac, as far as I can remember, uh, you know, et cetera. So every objective parameter in his life is worse. And yet he thinks he's better. And I think one could say he's just numb. And that's not a way to do medicine. And with maybe with that introduction, if you heard anything that you don't uh, agree with, I'd love to be corrected. But if you could then just explain a little bit about how you came to be interested in this subject, uh, how you came to do the movie, and really just whatever, what is the point of this and, and, and go from there? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so yeah, you touched on a lot of issues that, um, you know, I, I agree with everything you say. And unfortunately you and Andy are extremely rare, I would say, um, among doctors. So, because, um, so how we came to do this film was that my um, co-director and co-producer, who was a longtime college friend of mine, a friend of mine since college, um, has a family member who had been on psychiatric drugs for, oh, probably about 15 years. And she was on a number of drugs, as often happens when people um, continue in psychiatry, they'll often end up on three or four or five drugs, which you would think would make um, doctors ask, well, if the first one was working, why did they need drug two, three, four, and five? Right. <laughs> anyway, so she was on like an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, a benzodiazepine, probably something for sleep. And um, she was on disability for mental illness. She was no longer working. And she, in spite of all these drugs, had lots of um, compulsive thoughts. Uh, it just was generally a mess. And my Lynn, my co-director, had realized that over the 15 years of treatment, um, and mind you, this young woman had gone to some of the best psychiatrists in the country. Her family was quite well off. They, she'd been at Johns Hopkins. She'd been, you know, really top doctors. And, but after this 15 years, she was noticeably worse than when she started. And when she started, she was actually an Ivy League graduate and working full time and had been a college athlete. So was, you know, a highly functional 23 year old um, who started out, um, who got depressed and started out on one drug. And so now here she is 15 years later on disability for mental illness, uh, you know, can, can't hold down a job, can barely work as a volunteer. She doesn't even take very good care of herself anymore in terms of personal hygiene. So Lynn was just like, is this, you know, how did we get to this place? And she found the book um, by Bob Whitaker called Anatomy of an Epidemic. Yeah. And when she read it, it really explained uh, a lot about, you know, how uh, psychiatric drugs for many people and in many situations, not always, but can often be uh, creating uh, basically what's called mental illness can be creating dysfunction. Um, 
And Bob started this book uh, because of what he called a medical mystery, which was that um, in America and in the rest of the developed world, we started prescribing more and more psychiatric drugs starting in around 1990, I think, with Prozac. Um, And as the number of prescriptions for psychiatric drugs increased dramatically, like three or four fold in the population, um, you would think that you would see disability for mental illness declining. But in fact, you see the opposite. The disability numbers for mental illness start rising quite dramatically uh, in the 90s, just when the number of prescriptions for psychiatric drugs starts rising. And um, so, so in other words, if I can interrupt for a minute, uh, it's, it sort of started with a personal story of somebody who, if you just, uh, if you forget about what we think and what we know and what we think we know, anybody would say this was a story of an unmitigated disaster for a human being's life. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, correct me if I'm wrong, but the conclusion was probably her quote, mental illness got worse for whatever reason, even though she was being treated by the top psychiatrist. And apparently what happened is you and maybe her, your co-director started wondering if actually it wasn't her mental illness got worse, but her uh, essentially her relationship to being on medication was basically killing her. Right, exactly. So yeah, it started with a personal story, which led Lynn to read this book, and then me. um, And then we realized it was a very big um, societal issue, because so many people are on these drugs. And what was your background? You're you're not a psychiatrist or a social worker or a psychologist? what, what, What was your background leading into this uh, event? So I actually was in, have an MBA and I was a financial analyst on Wall Street and then a <laughs> mom and a homeschooler and a Waldorf teacher. So a lot of different things. But my um, work as an analyst actually was somewhat useful when we started doing the research for this film. Uh-huh. When, when we decided to do a film really inspired by this book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, um, we wanted to do it really about this whole issue of psychiatric drugs using some personal stories, but there are so many threads that you have to dig into. And then, you know, you get into the whole issue, which is really key to this whole story, which is pharmaceutical company marketing and their need to sell products, basically. Yeah, right. So in other words, your, your history as somebody who just analyzes data and come out, comes out with conclusions in that original case, what to do with somebody's money, I guess, or your money or something. I guess I was sort of, um, <clears throat> it was natural for me to look at things from a business point of view. And, yeah. uh, you know, the way psychiatric drugs are used is, it's not a medic, there's no medical logic to it. Yeah. Uh, but there is, once you see the business logic, then it all, everything we're doing makes sense from a business point of view, but so, not from a human point so of let's, view. So let's maybe start at the basic. What, what is a psychiatric diagnosis? And j- just to be clear, we're talking about 
bipolar and chem and depression and schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and you know what used to be called sort of crazy people or sad people or something like that and where do these diagnoses come from and if you could say something about because i know for myself you know i came to the conclusion that pretty much all diagnoses are are bogus and made up not just psychiatric ones but psychiatric ones are like the most egregious because uh can you say something about how how do we actually say that this illness is depression or bipolar or whatever it is right well you yeah you make a really good point and there's whole books written on this issue some of which we list on our website which are you know go into this in more depth but um yeah there's no uh blood test there's no biological uh, measure for psychiatric diagnoses and you know, if you look back in history, there have always been some people whose behavior was disturbing to others and themselves who were called crazy. Um, and there have always unfortunately been some suicides. Uh, however, we have a lot more suicides historically than I believe we've ever seen, certainly in this country. Um, but then how you label these um, disturbances, you know, back in the 1920s or 1910, there was only about four or five diagnoses, um, you know, and uh, hysteria was a big one for women who were generally diagnosed with hysteria. Um, and Which then, just meant somebody who like overreacted sometimes. Right, or today, you know, might be called uh, mania, or I don't even think they call it mania anymore. It was, there's some other word for it. But then later we came, we had more things like manic depression, which today is called bipolar, and which has been, um, you know, all these categories have been broadened that where 40, 50 years ago, manic depression was someone who showed very extreme mood swings. Um, and we're not talking about how you might how that should be dealt with, but just saying it was a reality that they had very extreme behavior in both directions. Whereas today, the bipolar diagnosis, I mean, you, anybody can get it. And if you actually read the checklist for you know, how they know you're bipolar, it's like things like, you know, some days I feel sadder than other days. You know? I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Some, I forget what it is. It's like sometimes, I think more about sex than usual. You know, like if you meet like four or five of these criteria that anybody can meet, you have a bipolar diagnosis, you could get a bipolar diagnosis. So today I think there's something like 400, 500 different diagnoses in yeah. the, the DSM-5 and it's been increasing every, every time they redo it. Um, and a lot of these diagnoses you know, are actually driven by um, the people on the board that make the DSM-5 uh, have their pet diagnoses that they've been doing research on. So for example, borderline personality disorder is a relatively new diagnosis. diagnosis. And if you read it, it just sounds like a really kind of difficult person who doesn't fit into 
the more classic categories of schizophrenic or manic depression. Um, and borderline personality disorder was supposedly discovered by Joseph Biederman, who's a notoriously corrupt um, Boston psychiatrist who's literally gotten mil tens of millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies. Um, and, you know, he claimed that this was, you know, a new diagnosis just based on his experience with uh, patients. But, you know, as you say, there's no, um, there's no biological reality to any of these diagnoses. And interestingly enough, today with neuroscience being very trendy, um, we interviewed some neuroscientists and they all say like, oh yeah, the DSM-5, it, it only has, it's, it's useful in a clinical setting, but it basically has no scientific reality to it. That, that would be the line you get from a neuroscientist. Right, so I, I have a number of things to say about that, but one of them was, I, I remember a friend who you know, claimed to be an anthroposophical doctor who said um, flat out, um, bipolar is a chemical disorder. So what, what is your comment on, is there actually any evidence or proof that there is any biochemical defect in a person with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder? No, I mean, that's an interesting that they would even try to say that um, because I don't believe that psychiatry, I mean, they may have looked a little bit for um, a chemical disorder in bipolar, but there's they never found anything. They, there was actually a lot of research looking for a chemical imbalance in depression with right. serotonin. Right. The antidepressants, the biggest selling antidepressants affect serotonin um, uptake in the brain. So obviously they wanted to show that serotonin, low serotonin is uh, related to depression. And in spite of like dozens and dozens of studies, possibly hundreds, this was never proven. In fact, it's been more or less proven the, the opposite. So today in, you know, in academic psychiatry, all of the leading academic psychiatrists and most of the, I would say all of the recent textbooks say that there is not, a, or they have not found a chemical disorder associated with any mental illness. Right. That, that's what I would say. And I, I would even go so far, and I don't know if you would agree with this, to categorically say that there is no actual good scientific study or evidence that a single psychiatric diagnosis is associated with any chemical or even biological parameter that we know of. Yes. And, and I, I think most academic psychiatrists would agree with that. Yeah. They would say you know, there's an interesting, uh, just to correlate, was that the reality is, and again, I, if, you, if you don't agree, I would love to hear it, but when you get down to the bottom line of where these diagnoses came from, uh, so let's switch subjects. If you get to a, where does the uh, genome of a certain virus come from? It turns out it's by consensus. In other words, 10 different virologists have 10 different opinions on what the actual virus looks like or what its genome is. 
and then they come into a room and they essentially vote on which one they think is most likely to be the actual viral genome. And so it's, you could say, if you like democracy, I guess you could say that's good because it's kind of a democratic process. But if you like science, there, there is no genome and they just voted on it. And I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the same thing with what is a personality disorder is a bunch of guys got in a room and voted on what they think it is. Right. And that's all there is to it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So like an example would be adult ADHD. Uh, I, I don't know how long ago, maybe 20 years ago, ADHD was uh, only a disorder that was supposed, you know, seen in children. They did not have a diagnosis for right. ADHD. And surprise, surprise, when it, when it appeared, when a lot of children were getting this diagnosis and getting medication and it was, had become a highly profitable market for pharmaceutical companies, they basically decided that it was ridiculous to just stop giving people ADHD drugs when they were adults because they would be losing a huge market. So um, I believe it was this same psychiatrist, Joseph Biederman from Harvard, uh, brought the ADHD diagnosis to the DSM, uh, the new DSM-5, and they just added it in so that now you can be diagnosed with adult ADHD and get a stimulant. Right. And so there's no, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, there's no study that says that adults who don't concentrate on things they're not interested in have low amphetamine levels or high amphetamine levels or low serotonin or high lithium or low lithium or low iodine or low GABA or anything as far as we know. Right, of course. I mean, and it's, I mean, I think it's just sort of obvious that if there is a chemical imbalance in the mind of some, someone who is, you know, has disturbing behavior or can't concentrate, why would it be just one chemical that happens to be the chemical patented by Pfizer? Yeah, right. That's <laughs> interesting coincidence. <laughs> so, so, I mean, yes, obviously ADHD in children or adults is not a deficit of amphetamine, uh, you know, or Adderall or anything. And it's not treated by giving people amphetamine. You know, I just a little story about this. I was on a panel in uh, Peterborough, New Hampshire at the school on ADHD in children. And they asked me to be part of it because I had a lot of children in my practice. And, and I'd never once also given a child uh, any kind of stimulant medicine. That, that's, anyways, they, they were going around the room saying what the diagnosis was. And they said things like, a child who uh, taps their pencil too many times and a child who, who, who taps on their knee too many times. And so being the smart aleck that I am, I asked the guy, how many times in a minute do you have to tap your pencil in order to have a diagnosis? And he said, 20. <laughs> and I said, so if you tap 19, you're a normal person. And if you tap 21, then you need Ritalin. And he said, well, no. I said, well, that's just what you said. He said, well, it depends on whether your foot uh, tapping too. 
So I said, how many times do you have to tap your foot in a minute? And he said, I don't know, six. And I said the same thing. And eventually he said, well, none of those by themselves uh, mean anything. But if you add them all together, then they're a proper diagnosis. And, and I just thought, that's the stupidest damn thing I've ever heard in my life. Because you can't make some kind of sense out of a bunch of nonsense. And for some reason, he couldn't see it. He thought this is legitimate. And I don't know, it just, it, you know, and, and like you say, as far as I can tell, and I think you, you, you agree, there is no evidence of a biochemical disorder. And even if there were chemicals that were different, that still obviously doesn't mean it's the cause, right? Right. I mean, and, you know, I personally think the human being is more than just a biochemical. Right. But to the extent that we are biochemistry, it's this incredible dance of thousands of chemicals. Right trillions of cells that is probably different at 9 a.m. in the morning than in the evening and that with women it probably changes during your cycle I mean it's just ludicrous to think that it's one chemical um, right but yeah so ADHD I think gets to the interesting question that um, on the one hand some children's behavior can be a problem to people around them and it, it can be that they have difficulty learning. So there is, you know, there are with a lot of people that end up in the psychiatric system, there is a real problem to start with. Not always. I mean, I think we have massive yeah. diagnosis. So probably 80% of people should never, I mean, they don't even really have a problem. They're being told right. they have a problem. Like if your kid you know, doesn't get straight A's and, and doesn't like doing two hours of homework a night, he doesn't necessarily have a problem. He's just right. an active kid, but there. Or maybe he's smart and doesn't want. He wants to do play outside in this in the creek instead of doing stupid geometry or something. But you know, you could say, to be honest, that a child who's really disruptive and really doesn't want to read that there is some sort of a problem there. But there's a, a couple. You know, one issue is 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 giving him an amphetamine a good solution to that. And does it even work? Because that's another issue we could get into. The research shows that in the case of ADHD drugs, they do not in improve academic performance in the long term. In the short term, they can seem to change behavior. Uh, but like all psychoactive drugs, you have this tolerance issue, which we could also talk about. But so, so do you have a theory on, on uh, because... I mean, one thing I would say is if you're feeling bad or depressed, you know, you can take cocaine and you'll feel differently, maybe even quote better. That doesn't mean A, it's a cocaine deficiency, nor does it mean you should do that every day. So do you have a theory on what, like, what why does an ADHD amphetamine seem to make a child concentrate better? Or why does a lithium or you know some uh bipolar you you have less dramatic mood swings at least temporarily do you have a comment on that yeah well so for amphetamines um which i don't know a lot about but like we know they were given to pilots during or they still are given to like fighter pilots yeah 
but especially during war, a lot of soldiers got amphetamines. Um, they can, they are useful in terms of giving people sort of energy and drive instead yeah. of being tired. And <clears throat> they do seem to um, significantly decrease empathy and in a way distractions. Yeah. So I, I've seen research with children on ADHD drugs that they have less social interactions right. at the it tends to sort of help with focus and help with energy, right. <clears throat> which in a way, you know, everybody kind of wants more of that. And coffee does that, cocaine in a certain sense, um, and amphetamine. But taking these drugs every day has a lot of other issues. Um, so you get tolerance, which is that the brain adapts, you know, right put some sort of a something psychoactive in your brain, the brain wants to return to homeostasis. So you will tend to get with um, amphetamines, just like with cocaine, that you need more and more to get the same effect. And that you actually need the drug just to be feel on your baseline. Yeah. What often happens is eventually the person will go back to the same amount of attention or focus they ever had. But if you take the drug away, they feel really, really bad. Right. So a lot of times people will say, my drug isn't really working for me anymore. Right. At this point, the doctors up the dose. Right. And they'll often be, that will keep going on over a period of even years till they get to the highest dose, at which point the doctors can't add another, can't, can't um, give them any more you know, Adderall and in this case, you can sometimes see people on a second drug of the same class uh, because they're not allowed to get more of the first one. So they'll be on two ADHD drugs, right. you know, crazy like that, or a stronger one, or they'll switch them from Ritalin to Adderall. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not a good, like your example with cocaine is a good one. Same with depression. The, there's really only one drug that makes people feel really happy and euphoric, and that's heroin or opiates. Yeah. Um, but it's not a wise thing, you know, to take that. Right. <laughs> because it'll kill you, basically. Yeah, yeah. You'll get tolerance and you'll have yeah. to have higher and higher doses, yeah, to the point where you can overdose. Right. Um, and, and just to say, you know, amphetamines and cocaine even are also what are vasoconstrictors, which means they shrink the uh, blood supply. And I, I remember seeing some pretty clear evidence that if you take these long term, you actually get a shrinkage of, of your essentially your brain. Yeah. So, so you get uh, you basically uh, poisoning your brain uh, for a short term improved slight ability to focus on things you're not interested in right exactly and there appear to be i think cardiac side effects also yes. from decreasing the blood flow yeah and this issue um of brain shrinkage which apparently there is some research on may explain the fact that we came across in our film which is was kind of a bit of a paradox was that these psychiatric drugs, which are synthetics, so they're not like cocaine is a more or less natural substance. Right. Um, Adderall is a synthetic. But these psych synthetic psychiatric drugs seem to be particularly difficult often for people to get off of. Right. So really horrible withdrawal. And 
it seems it may be explained by the fact that it, these drugs have actually changed their brain and changed the way it functions. So it's not so much that they're withdrawing from a substance as that they have to get off of the substance, but then the brain has to heal and that can take a very long time. So we heard a lot of just harrowing stories of withdrawal from psychiatric drugs that was way beyond um, anything we'd heard about street drugs. And yeah. And Can you say more about that? Because that was my personal experience as a doctor is, is there was nothing that uh, filled me with more dread or was like disheartening than a patient coming in on a psychiatric drug and me knowing I had to get them off because it just seemed like a nightmare. Yes, it, it is. And so in our film, we had Anna Lemke from Stanford who runs the Stanford Center for Addiction Medicine. Yeah. Um, she talks about for opiates, which are actually, I believe they're called a semi-synthetic. Right. Which I don't know exactly what that means, but <clears throat> from everything we've heard, and we had somebody in our film who had to get off opiates and psychiatric drugs later. She said psychiatric drugs were way harder than opiates. But um, Anna Lemke recommends for opiates a year, a taper over a year, yeah. so a gradual reduction. And there is evidence that suggests that for some of the other psychiatric drugs like benzodiazepines, it may have to be even slower. Yeah. So, this is obviously very challenging because the pills don't come in these gradual reductions. So people need to really reduce at about 10% a month or even 5% a month of their dose. And you know, people are uh, cutting their pills with razors, weighing them, bead counting from you know, capsules with beads yeah. uh, to do this really, really slow taper, which is, you know, is the only really safe way to do it. And that is start, there is starting to be research on this now. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard over and over again that uh, people saying there's, I've never been through any hell like the hell of, of abruptly stopping psychiatric drugs. Yeah, it's not advised. I mean, some people are able to stop them abruptly and do okay. It seems especially younger people, but, um, Gen there is uh, research now and sort of a movement called deprescribing. Yeah. Addresses other drugs also because apparently there are some other non-psychiatric drugs which can be dangerous to stop abruptly. But um, I think uh, Swapnil Gupta at Yale is doing research on deprescribing from psychiatric drugs. And yes, it has to be very slow. And even the uh, Veterans Administration has now put out guidelines that benzodiazepines need to be tapered off at about 20% reduction per month. Yeah. Suggest five months, which is probably still too fast. But you know, when you think of the number, I've heard met a number of people that were taken off uh, a benzodiazepine drug, you know, just cold turkey, just taken off it by a doctor, and it's extreme. It's extremely dangerous. And, and can you do you do you have any experience with what that what might happen with that person or what they might experience? Yeah, I mean they can have seizures. They can have uh, they can also have extreme suicidal thoughts. They can have neurological issues. Uh, there's a big lawsuit right now um, 
with Bohm Headland, the same firm that sued Monsanto on, I think, Cymbalta withdrawal. And I think yeah. specifically it's addressing uh, seizures. So um, just everything from neurological symptoms to uh, severe psychiatric symptoms of um, suicidality, obsessive thoughts. Um, some people lose their balance entirely. They feel like they can barely stand up. Right. Especially often um, the effect of coming off the drug is sort of the opposite of what the drug did. So for the anti-anxiety drugs, people can have extreme debilitating panic that just doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, because I guess their brain's own capacity for regulation has been affected. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, there's a little bit of a rock and a hard place because staying on the drugs just makes it worse and you're ending up with more brain injury and more actual toxicity from the drug. Uh, uh, on the other hand, withdrawing is no picnic. And it sounds like people need to really be uh, precise and careful about doing this, but they have to do it nonetheless. I mean, I used to tell people, if you're on a psychiatric drug, you are not a healthy person, period. Yes. I don't know if you would agree with that, but. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would never <laughs> encourage anybody to take them. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence also that um, particularly, I think the antidepressants affect uh, gut functioning. Yeah. Um, and so even uh, some people will say, well, I'm just on one drug. I'm just on a little, little antidepressant. But it, they're, they're not really little. Um, they have very profound effects physiologically and on the brain. But you're correct that coming off them is, um, needs to be done very carefully. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, I think there are some people that it will be too difficult for them to get off all the way and some sort of, sort of harm reduction by going down in their doses is advisable um and this is very tragic you know yeah. people that have put on heavy doses of antipsychotics these drugs just have such a profound effect and seem to change people's brain functioning in a way that it's extremely difficult got it all right let's switch to a little bit um so you, you, I, it's it sounded to me in the movie you know a lot about the marketing and the finances and the whole business model behind this. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I feel on some level that the drug companies are just, we like to blame drug companies some of the time, except for then sometimes we suddenly have all this trust in them, like when they're going to make a COVID vaccine. But um, in general, I feel like the drug companies are doing what they're supposed to do, which is to maximize value for their shareholders. Right. And the only way that they make a lot of money is to sell a lot of drugs. And um, so that's what they do. And um, they're succeeding very well at it in that Americans are taking more and more drugs. And obviously the best drugs from the point of view of the psych of, um, the pharmaceutical companies are drugs that you have to take every day for the rest of your life. Right. And that's, you know, the, that's the narrative around psychiatric drugs is, Oh, you know, you're probably going to need to take this forever. Right. Um, 
And then, you know, it's actually a great side effect that the drugs sort of stop working and you have to keep getting a higher and higher dose of it too. That's useful also. So um, they do what they do and they sell drugs. The, the problem is, is that they have figured out really over the last particularly 30 or 40 years um, without, I mean, they do do some things that are totally illegal, that's for sure. But they Can you do- give us an example of that? <laughs> well, there's a number of lawsuits in the realm of the psychiatric drugs for um, illegal marketing of antipsychotics to children, for example. I believe the yeah. drug Risperdal. Yeah. Um, the marketing of antipsychotics is particularly sort of loathsome because they're drugs that have a very strong effect on the whole metabolism. They cause metabolic disorder, and that's a known side effect that psychiatrists are actually trained to then figure out what to do about it. And metabolic disorder basically it seems to be people's thyroids are disabled and they gain lots of weight. And yeah. They can have terrible acne. Nevertheless, antipsychotics, you know, for truly psychotic people is a relatively small market. So the drug companies got the bright idea at some point that they should just market these drugs as an add-on for anybody who is so-called treatment resistant. So treatment resistant depression means your antidepressant isn't working. So they started marketing antipsychotics that they should try antipsychotics on people. And which, which drugs are these? Which, what are the names of those? Be like Risperdal, Abilify, Zyprexa. Yeah. yeah. Um, those drugs are amazingly widely prescribed. At one point, I think Abilify was like the best-selling, one of the best-selling drugs in America. Yeah, right. In antipsychotics. So I've met people that were given where their child was getting Abilify for anger management. Um, you know, and basically these drugs are neuroleptics. That's the actual name, the class. Antipsychotic yeah. is actually a marketing name. Um, and they suppress the central nervous system, sort of kind of zombifying people and sort of disabling right. the frontal cortex. I believe that can be seen. So, you know, for someone who is a bit angry or a bit whatever, you know, it can kind of like bring them down, but they're very harmful, toxic, extremely toxic drugs. And um, anyway, there was, there've been a number of billion dollar lawsuits over marketing these drugs to children in spite of the fact that there was no research showing that they were safe and um, so that's the type of illegal things pharmaceutical companies right. do. They do a lot of things that are perfectly legal, but which have entirely corrupted the evidence base of medicine. Um, so I could give you some examples. Yeah, I'd love to hear an example of that. I, I also want to just point out that in my looking into uh, this whole history of psychosis, it turns out in the 1860s and around then, uh, they used to send the, you know, there was a, always the occasional, quote, psychotic or, quote, crazy person. And they would send them to these Quaker places and they would live there for like a year. And their cure rate, meaning they were never psychotic again, was about 80%. Right. And, and all they did there was 
basically, as far as I could tell, two things. One, they had to wear clean clothes every day. And two, they had to take a hot bath at night. And the only other thing was the people who worked there, they said had to be of good cheer, which means apparently not grumpy people because then it doesn't help as much. And uh, those people who were the worst of the worst, 80% of them got better. And then eventually the psychiatrist got a hold of them and started giving them lobotomies and, and then psychosis and schizophrenia became incurable, so. Yeah, that's an, an excellent, a really important point because uh, there's actually, if you go to, if your listeners or audience goes to Mad in America, yeah. um, an excellent, there's a lot of research and um, debate there, but there is extremely solid and extensive research. And I think it was mostly done by Martin Harrow from the UK that shows that untreated psychosis has about what you say, about an 80% cure rate, that yeah. no treatment, 80% of people are gonna be able to go back to functioning in terms of living at home and working. Right. However, medicated psychosis has the inverse. It has only about long-term, only about 20% of people will be able to live a normal life. Yeah, and, and none of them are cured. They're all taking meds for the rest of their life. Yes, they're just, for whatever reason, able to somewhat function on their meds as opposed right. to ending up on disability and in a group home or on the street. Yeah, and the, the, the therapy was basically providing a safe environment for them so they didn't hurt themselves. And essentially yeah. that's all that needed to be done. But so let's get back to the studies that show that they're corrupt, not illegal, or the techniques. So there's one of the things that you probably have heard about is the pharmaceutical companies basically figured out how to infiltrate all of medicine and in particularly academic medicine with their money. Yeah. So the way they do that is um, starting on the lower levels, they identify what are called key opinion leaders. And that's just sort of any halfway prominent doctor in any area. I think it's anybody who's the director of a hospital department, or I think even a lead doctor in a, in a major practice. And they will offer anyone who's a key opinion leader um, all sorts of sort of consulting, you know, offers. Just, you know, help read over our latest study, come and speak to a small gathering of local yeah. doctors, um, teach in CMEs, uh, continuing medical education. And these consulting payments are significant uh, amount of money. And then as it moves up, you know, their way of buying doctors becomes more money. So they will do everything from funding research that somebody wants to run in, you know, in their hospital. It's extremely expensive, as you know, to do a, a medical research, but it's, if you want to rise up in the ranks, you need to, you can't just practice, you need to do yeah. research. So they fund that research um, they pay, you know, these higher up doctors large amounts of money to consult with them. Um, they also have a practice. So that's sort of direct payments to doctors. 
they used to actually just take doctors on ski trips and finance, you know, big things. Right. I believe that was put an end to. Yeah. And of course, every doctor in the country is visited by drug reps who I'm sure you know them and who are at generally. I didn't, I didn't actually let them come and visit me, but I know what you mean. They're usually attractive young people who basically yeah. educate the doctors about the drugs because there's so many drugs, doctors, it's hard for them to actually educate themselves about these drugs. So right. these people come in and they always buy them lunch, but that's the lowest level. So on the really high levels, the academic psychiatrists that are you know, running departments or high up in medical schools are usually a consultant to a pharmaceutical company, you know, from everything from developing new, new drugs, often it's a lot about new drug development to whatever, you know, following if some drug is actually more effective when combined with another drug. And they get hundreds and thousands of dollars for this sort of consultant. My guess is if they come up with a drug, they get a piece of the patent as well, so. Right, so that, that's another issue. And then another, another important thing to point out is that 90% of clinical of medical research is financed by pharmaceutical companies. Right. And they don't just say, oh, please do a study on depression and here's a million dollars. Go design the best study you can. You know, Go yeah. see if Prozac really works. No, that's not what they do. So most of the medical research is actually designed to show that one of their drugs works to either get an FDA approval or to what another thing they like to do is they can get a patent extension if they can show that a drug that's already approved works for a different um, disorder. Yeah. Another reason why multiple disorders is great. So first they'll get something approved for depression and then they'll say, oh, it actually works for OCD. Right. A patent extension. So they finance research on this type of issue. And the way they do it is their own doctors, their own people will design, will do the trial design. They'll plan out who's gonna be brought into the trial, what drug do they get? How do we measure their symptoms? How do we measure the effects of the drug? They design the whole trial and they often will farm it out to, often it's just some sort of small clinic in rural Pennsylvania some drugs it's even done overseas and with drug, new drugs that can be dangerous. They'll often like actually yeah. have them tested in Eastern Europe or somewhere. They do the test, they, then they get the data back. Their people analyze it. Then they send it to specialized medical ghostwriters who work for them, who will actually write up the study, the abstract right. and the study. And the abstract is often a bit of an exaggeration compared to what is actually in the group. Right. Otherwise known as a lie. Right. And then they take it to their favorite academic bigwig Harvard psychiatrist consultant and they he reads it and supposedly you know signs off on it but they'll put his name on it and right. offer a bunch of names and then it's submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine where this same psychiatrist or some of his friends and some other psychiatrists that are also consultants for Pfizer are on the peer review yeah, right. and then it passes the peer review and it gets published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And you know, this is what we call you know, peer reviewed research. 
Right. But, basically uh, bribery and corruption, basically. Yeah, and and an interested actor, the pharmaceutical company, has had their paws in it right from the very beginning of the trial design. Yeah. So there's nothing, you know, particularly um, you know, magical science about it. <laughs> or they know how to manipulate they know how to design trials that look right. that they can't fail. Yeah, that they can't fail. And if they actually see a trial is really turning out in a way that they don't like, they just end it. Yeah. You know, if there's too many side effects, they'll say, oh, it's not ethical. Like, let's just stop this trial. But then they'll start it again. But this time use maybe younger subjects. Right. Different right. doctor. Because maybe that first doctor that was running the trial, he too many people were having bad side effects. Let's go. Maybe this other doctor, when he runs the trial, there's not going to be side effects. That's good. So... They figure out a way to get the results that they want. All right. So two more things. Please tell us how to access and watch this amazing movie or video or documentary or whatever you call it. Yes. So we have a website, um, www.medicatingnormal.com. Medicatingnormal.com. Got it. Medicatingnormal.com. And um, there's upcoming virtual screenings that if you go under, I think it says watch the film and you can um, sign up for a virtual screening. We also have a YouTube channel that has, oh, hundreds of hours of inter the rest of the interviews from our experts. So there's a lot of really top academic psychiatrists who are critical, very critical of medic these medications. And how do they get on that YouTube channel? What, what do they go to YouTube and then what? Um, if, on the website, it, it connects to the YouTube channel and the YouTube uh, is called Medicating Normal. Medicatingnormal.com. There's okay. a lot of information there about the different drug categories, about withdrawal, about diagnoses, about corruption. So, and watch the film. And eventually it's gonna be out on the web, on our website to watch and on Amazon. And Probably not Netflix, but you never know. Got it. And final thing, you, you had some, uh, I think something you wanted to share about some a relationship or a connection maybe between what's happening with what we're calling COVID and this whole issue of psychiatric drugs or medicating normal. And if you don't want to say anything, that's fine. But if you had some thoughts on that, I'd love to hear it. Well, I mean, that's, that's so big. It's just, I, I was surprised um, that a lot of people who are really critical of psychiatric medications, both um, academic, you know, the, the small number of academic psychiatrists who are critical and the, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of people in the survivor movement, because there's yeah. a large movement online of ex-patients. Um, I was surprised that many of that, not all of them, but as probably about half of them. So it's about like the general population, but, you know, bought into the COVID narrative. And I think it's, you know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, I think we really have to think, do we trust, unfortunately, you know, do we trust the medical authorities? Yeah. Do we trust the pharmaceutical companies? And these two things, a lot of people will say, no, I don't really trust pharmaceutical companies, but I do trust the WHO or the CDC. 
But these two things are the same in the yeah. that everybody at the CDC has been a consultant for pharmaceutical companies and will probably go work there after they leave the CDC. So, you know, it's, I really don't, personally, I don't understand why everybody believes what all these people like Tony Fauci and, you know, the yeah, other right. chosen experts are telling us. Right. These, they're essentially the same people in a different slightly different role as the guy who ran the psych drug trial. <laughs> They're the same people that, you know, have been selling us all these other drugs, including opiates that really right. help people. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I used to have a way of saying that a person would come in and, and say, you know, I went to my doctor and he said something about my health. And I would almost look at them and say, and you believed your doctor about your health? Like, how, why did you do that? <laughs> Anyways, that's maybe a little my cynical side or uh, smart Alex side, but I, I get it. I don't know why anybody believes these guys. They're basically just in cahoots in a way. Yeah, I mean, that said, I, I did have the sense doing this film and meeting so many people that a lot of doctors in a way are victims of this system too. Yeah. I mean, they sh you might, it, theoretically, you could say, oh, they should be smart enough to see through this and to get out of it. But it's really hard. And a yeah. lot of them are, first of all, don't even know all this information. Yeah. And if they did, they would, might, they'd be pretty trapped anyway. Yeah. So and there's so, almost a sort of karmic thing. You know, I, I was lucky because I, even from day one, I didn't do it. So I never had to confront the, oh my God, I spent 10 years vaccinating people. Mm. And what am I supposed to write them all a letter saying, sorry, and I didn't know what I was doing? I, I, I actually have done that because I think I've given five tetanus shots in my life. And if any one of those five people uh, remembers that, I will <laughs> publicly apologize to them. Uh, but I didn't give anybody any Prozac. But I can imagine what that would be like to go through that knowing I just spent the last 10 years giving people Adderall. And I, I don't know if I could deal with that. So I, I get that too. Yeah, it's, I, think it's, I think there's a lot of victims in this. Yeah. World. All right, Wendy, I really appreciate it. I want everybody to go watch the film, uh, maybe send you comments or maybe you don't really want comments, but um, yeah. uh, Send comments, have your friends watch it. Think really hard about these drugs because they're pretty nasty. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.